if you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Galatians. Um, and I, I tell you, I always tell everybody, hey, if you got your, if you got a Bible, bring it with you. Uh, you know, however you like to access your Bible, whether it be on your phone or on a iPad or, or actually with the, the book in your hands, uh, you'll, you'll want that every time we're, we are together to really jump in and, and dissect and look around the book of Galatians. It's kind of uh, interesting to think of our faith and, and a correct practice of our faith centers around reading and studying a collection of books. You ever think of Christianity like that? Like that's what we're doing. Every time Christians gather, we're, we're prayerfully studying a collection of books together. And that might be uh, a turnoff to a lot of people who may not fancy themselves as readers. Or maybe when you think of reading in general, maybe you don't get excited <laughs> very much, you know. Um, yeah, just coming off a of vacation, I, I have never known anyone in, in my life or of any person who reads more than Amanda Parman. Uh, Amanda just chews up and spits out books like nobody you've ever seen in your life. And when we go on vacation, and, and she's not teaching and things like that, she is just ready to knock out book after book after book after book. She, it was 11 books in 11 days. That's how, that's how quickly she was knocking out books. Anytime we weren't eating, sleeping, or swimming, she was reading a book. At one point, we were at the pool, and she goes to the, the restroom with no book in her hand, and she comes out of the restroom with a book in her hand. And I'm like, where did the book come from? She's like, there's a shelf in the ladies' restroom. It's like leave one, take one books, and you can just grab a book and take it and read it. I'm like, that's so gross. That is so gross. But then every time we went to the pool, she's like, I'm going to go to the restroom and see what else is in there. And she knocked out book after book after book. And it's, it, I mean, she's like, I finished another one, you know. She, just, she loves novels and stuff like that. I, I, honestly, I'm jealous. I am jealous because I can't read like that. I can't knock out books like that. It's just not how I'm wired. And, and she grew up with a, such a healthy regiment of reading all of the time in her household and stuff. But to make me feel better, um, she'll say, well, you know, Cody, it's just junk reading. It's just junk food reading. Novels, you know, it doesn't matter if I know the content or not. It's just reading a story and, you know, you can just, you know, mow right through that. There's, you know, I'm, I'm not reading this book for any kind of spiritual nourishment or anything like that. It's just, it's just a novel. It's just reading for fun. And so I think she's on to something there, though. You know, I, I think that, I, well, I wonder if that doesn't play into why we don't read the Bible as much as what we should or, or go into God's Word as much as what we should because, you know, the Bible isn't just casual reading. It's not just reading for fun. It's something different, right? Like reading one of those novels, she'll say, it's, it's like eating a bag of potato chips, right? You, you don't have to think. You're just eating the chips. You just go, go, go. Uh, but when you have the Bible in front of you, this is a perfectly cooked to perfection meal. It's a steak, you don't just casually eat a steak that's been cooked to perfection. You want to savor every bite. You want to really appreciate that steak as you eat it. And we have the perfect book in front of us, a collection of perfect books to, to change us. They're, they're divinely inspired. Um, the, every single one of these books in the Bible is full of information that is critical to our growth. All of the information is critical to faith and life and how we live it. So the stakes are so much higher whenever you pick up the Bible to read something than it is just casual poolside reading. So we don't go into the Bible uh, for a time of entertainment. We're not, we don't just pick up our Bible to be entertained. We don't pick up our Bible just to check something off the good deeds list. We don't pick up the Bible to figure out, oh, is this a good read or a bad read? You know, we, when we as believers pick up the Bible, we are doing it to discern life. We're doing it to discern ourselves. We're, we're picking up the Bible so that we can know who God is. We don't pick up the Bible to see if it's a good read or not. We pick up the Bible to see 
uh, how we can read ourselves. You know, are, are we good or bad? Are we doing something right or wrong? That's, that's a humbling thing to do. We typically go into any sort of material that we're reading to discern what is right or wrong, good or bad there, right? We don't do that with the Bible. We, we go into the Bible to edify ourselves, to judge ourselves, to be judged. We, we don't like that humbling experience of being judged, so we avoid the Bible a lot of times. We don't take the time to read it because we don't want to be humbled. We're naturally prideful. We don't, like, we don't even like to consider the possibility that we're wrong about something, especially when it comes to faith, especially when it comes to religion and God. We don't, we don't like to be wrong about anything. So we want to pick up the book of Galatians with a humble heart. Right? We want to pick up this book of the Bible prayerfully, and, and, and we want to pick up this book of the Bible knowing that this is God's word to inform me on what I should think, on what I should believe. This is a book of the Bible that I am picking up to read to be instructed by, changed. I'm to be corrected by this book of the Bible, open to rebuke. You know, when you think about being rebuked, you don't let just anybody rebuke you. That's, that's a fact. As far as meaningful rebuke in your life, you can count those people on one hand easily, right? You get rebuked, you could get rightly rebuked by the wrong person and you reject it immediately, right? When we go into the Bible, don't we want to be rebuked? Rebuke, being rebuked is something that is good if it's right. Well, this is God's word to us and it does instruct us and rebuke us and we need that. We want to be able to change our minds about things. Think about things differently. That is what repentance is. When we, that, that age-old word, repent, that just means to change your mind. We, we go into the Bible to repent, to change the way we think about things. And so if the Bible can't change, change your mind, what can? This is the sense in which the Bible is transformational reading and not just casual Reading. So today we're, we're again jumping into this book of Galatians that I hope you found by now in your New Testament. And if you prayerfully study this book with an open mind, you will be changed by it. Uh, you will be changed by it. It's going to change how you think about the gospel of Jesus. Isn't that an important thing, right? It's going to change about uh, your mind on issues of salvation and, and how you live that out, what that looks like, how it functions in your life. What an important read. What an important read. We're, we're coming off a time of study in which we spent 66 weeks in the Gospel of Mark, learning all about the things that Jesus said and all about the things that Jesus did and, and how that fulfills Old Testament prophecies. Okay, but what do you do with that? How does that really inform your salvation? How does that salvation work itself out in your life? That's what these New Testament letters are for, right? So you had Gospels like Mark circulating, one of the first Gospels circulating amongst Christians, and then these letters to the churches circulated right on the coattails of those Gospels so that Christians, the first Christians, could sort out the implications of what Jesus did, what he said, and, and what it means that he fulfilled this Old Testament Scripture. We, we, we learn about the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus in those four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then we have these epistles so that you and I still today can sort out what all of that means. This is your opportunity to sort that out. Think about how critical that is. I didn't really know how the New Testament worked for so much of my life. Even though I grew up in the church, I, I was at church more than I wasn't at church growing up. But I wish somebody would have explained this concept to me so that I could better understand how to approach the New Testament. Like, so this is an oversimplified explanation as to how your New Testament works. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You're reading Matthew's account of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Then, and then you have Mark's account. Same thing. It's like going back to the beginning and reading all that again in a more efficient way. And you got Luke's account, which is the most drawn out account. The most details are in Luke, but it's all just the life and times of Jesus. And then you get to John's gospel, 
And it's his account, but he has this more like lawyer approach. He's trying to make a case uh, for who Jesus is and, and what he did and said. And then you have all of these epistles after that in the New Testament. 21 epistles. Don't let the word epistle scare you. That is just a Greek word. You hear me refer to the letters of Paul and things like that, the, the letters in the New Testament after the Gospels. Epistle is just the Greek word for letter. Since it was written in Greek, we, we, we keep that word around. These are the epistles. These, these are the letters, the messages that the apostles of Jesus wrote to all of the churches that were planted out there so that they could sort out the implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's in, it's critical. It is critical that you and I, as we think about the gospel and what it means for us, how we're supposed to think about it, how we're supposed to live it out, that we read these letters, these epistles in the New Testament. Because it's like the gospels are saying, here's what Jesus said and did. The epistles say, here's what that means for you. And it still means that today. Here's what it means for you right now. Here's how it affects you right now. So how incredibly important is this study that we really know this? I mean, knowing Jesus is one thing. Knowing what Jesus means for you, that's something entirely different. So that's how the New Testament is set up. The, the Holy Spirit uses this New Testament to inform us of Jesus, but then to also instruct us on how to think about Jesus and what we do with this information that is the gospel of Jesus. And so... You may ask yourself right now, you, when, we, when we get into book studies and when we gather for church, you can come here and this not mean anything. You can, you can spend an hour here and it make, make no difference in your life whatsoever. But what Christians historically have done when we gather is we invite conviction into our life. When we gather together, it's, we're doing a lot of things. But one thing that we are doing is we, are, we want to be convicted of sin in our life and, and incorrect ways of thinking and living. And so that's why we, we gather around the Word of God to do this. And so do you actually want to live in, the, in light of who Jesus is, what he's done? Do you actually want to do that? You need Galatians. You need Galatians in order to do that. That's why it was written. You want to you wanna know how what Jesus said and did should change what you say and what you do today? Well, you need a book like Galatians to read through and to study. That's why we have these letters. So after 66 weeks of studying through the Gospel of Mark, I hope that you know Jesus better. I hope you know more things about Jesus. I hope you're more familiar with what he taught, what he did, the miracles, and how it fulfilled Old Testament Scripture. But as we get into Galatians and as we get through Galatians, I hope you know what to do with that more than what you did before we start, started this study. That's the goal. I want you to know what to do with this information. And again, this is how Galatians will equip us over the next several months as we look under every rock and consider everything that's happening in this letter. So we've we got to get our bearings first when we get into the book of Galatians because doesn't it, uh, maybe, maybe today's the first time you've ever heard of a book named Galatians. I don't know. But the first five, book, or first five verses of this book is what we're covering today. And it's going to help us to answer the questions of who, what, when, where. We're just trying to get our bearings in this book of the Bible. Like, what is Galatians? And so again, like, that oftentimes, in and of itself, taking the time to get your bearings in the book of Galatians, it helps you understand the message of Galatians. A lot of times, I think Christians today or people who go to the Bible for wisdom, one of the most common mistakes that they make, this happens over and over again, we, we're intimidated by the Bible, we don't understand the Bible, we don't make time to understand the Bible, and then in, in emergencies, we crack open the Bible. And then we're like, oh, Lord, just give me some wisdom, and we just kind of open it up and, and look for a a verse or a paragraph in there, maybe, hoping to get a nugget of wisdom. That's not really how, I mean, unless you open, happen to open up to the book of Proverbs that actually functions a little bit like that, and only some of Proverbs functions like that, you're that's not going to work. You don't do that with any other book, do you? You don't, ever, you don't pick up any other book and just, like, open randomly to some page and, and read something 
and expect that book to make any sense whatsoever. But people do that with the Bible all of the time. And then they'll say, man, I the Bible is just hard to read. Well, you just picked it up and, you know, like, you just happen to open up to Galatians chapter 4 and read a verse and, and you're complaining that that didn't make any sense to you? <laughs> like, no other book works like that either, including the Bible. So we, we got to get our bearings. And so we're going to kind of look at the who, what, when, where, and some of the factors that are at play in these first five verses. And it's going to help, help us to understand where we're at in time and space as we study Galatians and, and be ready to learn, ready to be changed by it. So let, I'm just going to read all five verses of chapter one all together. This is the greeting, and we'll get started. This is Paul, an apostle, not from men nor from man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So this letter, or epistle. This was written by the Apostle Paul. It's already getting hard with these words. Epistle, Apostle. <laughs> Got to pronounce them uh, very carefully. But Paul is who wrote this letter. So Paul, the Apostle Paul, he wrote most of the letters in the New Testament. So of the 21 epistles, of the 21 letters that you'll find in the New Testament after those Gospels, like 14 of them are written by the Apostle Paul. He wrote the most, um, the most amount of books in the New Testament. He didn't write the most content, actually. That's, uh, that's uh, Luke. He just wrote Luke and Acts, but there's so much content there. It's more than everything that Paul wrote. But Paul wrote the most amount of letters in the New Testament, which makes sense because he planted so many churches as Christianity was taking off. And so he can write scripture because he is an apostle. This is such an incredibly important thing to know when it comes to our claim as Christians that this is the authoritative, inerrant, infallible word of God. A lot of that is tied to our understanding of what an apostle is. We're most familiar with the word disciple. We think of the 12 disciples. Well, disciple is just like student, and disciples would follow a rabbi or a teacher. So now, Jesus was a rabbi. He had lots of students. He had a ton of students. People followed him and learned from him. But he had a core group of disciples that he was really close with. Those are the 12 that we typically think of. They weren't the only disciples. They were just part of this inner circle of disciples. And those 12 disciples, they were commissioned in a special way. They, they went from being a student of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, to being an apostle of Jesus. That means that when they went out and taught, because they were commissioned by Jesus to be one of his apostles, which means sent one, that's literally what that word means, they taught with the same authority of their teacher. If you were an apostle of Jesus, then when you taught, it was to be received with the same amount of authority as if Jesus himself were preaching. So that, that's huge. So we've got to really listen to what an apostle is saying, what they're writing. And so that made them a special, uh, a special person of authority because they were commissioned by Jesus himself. So you were an apostle if you were commissioned by Jesus himself to, to preach and teach, and you were also able to do signs and wonders like Jesus. So whenever Jesus went out and, and preached, it was accompanied with signs and wonders, with miracles. And what those miracles did, how they functioned, is they validated the message that Jesus preached. He preached this message, this gospel, and then he did miracles that was the Father's way of validating what he was saying was true. So apostles functioned just like that. They taught the message of Jesus, and signs and wonders accompanied them, and they, it validated the message that they preached. And so today, there are no apostles like there were then. 
There are no more apostles today in that sense. So there can't be. There can't be. So Paul is helping us to understand his credentials as we get into this greeting so that we can understand the seriousness of what he's saying, so that we can can attach the authority to what he's saying. He's an apostle. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So when you really get into the study of what an apostle is in the New Testament, you find two things. One thing is what I just mentioned. They were, in fact, commissioned by a physically present Jesus to be an apostle for him, and they had affirmation from other apostles. So that's how you knew someone was an apostle, and that's why today there are no more apostles. No one is being commissioned by a physically present Jesus like what they were. And no one can be affirmed as an apostle by the original 12 apostles because all of those guys are dead. So they, no one gets to be an apostle in this sense. It's special. It's unique. So today, a very frustrating thing is that when you start to look around under the umbrella of Christianity and all these sorts of different things that are said and done, you do have some people claiming to be an apostle in the same sense that Paul was an apostle or John was an apostle. They claim to have that same authority, and it's not true. It doesn't play out like that in the New Testament. And we have the New Testament to know and discern that that's not true. But what people today who claim they are an apostle in that sense will do is they'll say, when I speak truth into your life, you are to have what I say on the same plane as what Paul said as an apostle, because I'm an apostle like Paul. They'll say, when I have a word... For you, from God, you are to take those words in the same exact way you would take God's words. When I speak, it is just as authoritative as if God himself were speaking. And only an apostle can do that. And since people today can't meet the qualifications of a bona fide apostle like that, it's not true. And when that happens, and when it's allowed to happen... That's when things get pretty squirrely and inconsistent in Christianity. And honestly, what's most frustrating to me is when people claim to be an apostle just like Paul today, it's an assault on the authority of Scripture itself. That's what really eats away at me when I think about this and I get frustrated about. It's an assault on the genuine and legitimate claims of of the original apostles, and it does harm to the authority of Scripture, right? Paul's claim to the to be an apostle was so important so important for these first christians so that they could know uh, they could make a distinction between false teaching and true teaching and so the office of apostleship i'm emphasizing the the importance of it and, and a correct understanding of it because i don't want i don't want you to abuse the authoritative word of God like other people who try to claim they can speak with the same type of authority the Bible can. So when we use some of this terminology a little too loosely nowadays, I don't know that people intend to do harm when they talk like this, but sometimes I've had people come up to me and say, Cody, I have a word from God to you that I want to speak into your life. And when when I hear someone approach me like that, it's kind of like nails on a chalkboard, I'll be honest with you. Because I'm like, whoa, you're speaking, you're saying that what you're saying is, is just as authoritative as the word of God? Like, no, no, it's not. I, now, when people approach me like that, I don't like smack them on the hand. <laughs> like, because they're, 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 they're trying to be, I think in most cases, genuinely kind and helpful in those situations. But, but when they approach me like that, I, I, I cringe because I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. 
You are not equally as authoritative as God. The words that come out of your mouth are not equal in authoritativeness as, as the word of God or as the, the prophets and the apostles. No, no, I would never, ever accept that. You don't meet the criteria that is assigned in Scripture to those offices. But I don't say anything. I kindly listen to what they have to say. And, and you know, sometimes uh, I'll, I'm, I'm happy to hear their opinion as to what they think God wants me to know, and perhaps their opinion and advice they want to give me is even spirit-led and helpful and good. But I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to elevate what they say to the words of God himself. No, that would harm the, authoritative, the authoritativeness of Scripture. So when, when people approach us like that, do we need the counsel of other Christians to understand things rightly? Sure, Scripture tells us that. That's how we know that, right? So it's helpful and good, but... I don't take everything you say, and I don't want you to take everything I say. I don't, I, don't, I don't show up at your house and, hey, let me tell you what God has for you today, right now. That's not how this works. That would be an abuse of my role as a pastor and elder. What I do is I say, hey, let's all gather around the actual words of God that we know for a fact are the words of God, and let's, let's walk through this prayerfully and let's discern life together. And then when, whenever life gets complicated, we can collectively gather around the Word of God and look for truth and apply that truth, use that truth in the way that God in, intended so that we can be equipped to live out the Christian life together. So we need the counsel of brothers and sisters, but let's be careful how we speak truth into one another's life. If I say to you, I have a Word of God for you, and it's not me just reading out of the Bible, <laughs> maybe some red flags should be popping up, right? So Paul had this special authority as an apostle. I don't have that authority. None of you have that authority. He is an apostle. And by having that special authority, he had a special platform. He had uh, Christians in Galatia were able to discern right from wrong because of his office as an apostle. And it allowed the early church to be consistent it allowed the early church to be consistent because just like today, people are saying all sorts of stuff. People say all sorts of stuff about Jesus today. They say all sorts of stuff about God today. You, you get into a religious conversation and it can go all over the place. It's, it's somewhat overwhelming and overbearing when you start to have religious conversations with people. That's why the two, one of the two things you're never supposed to talk about at Thanksgiving is religion and politics. It's overwhelming and it's just hard to sort through it all. But when it comes to religious conversations, you and I prayerfully use God's word to sort through all of the chaos and all of the, the, the overwhelming amount of things that are said about God. And we can discern all of those things as right or wrong because we have a, apostle-approved material from God. What a, what a blessing. Like, if we didn't have the word of God for sure right here, like, how do you sort through all of that? Do you just believe the person that you, you like their personality the best? So I'm going to take everything that they say as truth over and above anybody else because, well, I, I, you know, they make me feel good. I like them. They're my kind of guy. You know, I think a lot of people really discern faith like that today especially in the day and age that we live in where we have all of these celebrity pastors, we start to elevate them and everything that they say is true no matter what, they can't ever be wrong. And, and then if they ever do say anything that's a little sideways and you kind of question that, you are a bad guy. How dare you, you can't question it. Yeah, I can, I can question him and so can you. He's not an apostle. And so when I preach up here all the time, I tell you, you I wanna preach expository sermons I want you to listen with expository ears. I'm trying to teach the word of God, and I want you to discern every word that comes out of my mouth. I am not an apostle. You want to discern everything that I say as right or wrong based on what the, judge me according to the word of God. And you, you measure me against the word of God, and I'll measure you by the word of God. That's, that's the tool that we are given to be able to discern life. And so again, preachers say all kinds of stuff. We contradict each other all the time. How are you going to figure out who's right and who's wrong? Don't base it on our personality, man. Don't do that. 
based on what the Word of God says. Judge me. Be judgmental. People, people uh, misapply that, those words of Jesus. Uh, don't judge. That's not what he, he did. He, he isn't saying don't discern, right? Don't discern. Can you imagine if that's what Jesus actually meant when he said that? Don't discern anything. Oh, okay, I guess I just believe everything then. <laughs> no, that's not what Jesus is saying. Measure everyone the same. We use the Bible to do that. That's what Jesus was, was getting at. And if we don't do that, we're going to be so inconsistent. We're going to be so inconsistent. You see, these ministries who say, yeah, the Bible's great, but listen to what I have to say because it's, it's equally as important. They actually divide the church. I don't want to be a divisive pastor. I, I, I can't stand it that we're so fractured in Christianity. It's awful. It's embarrassing. And it's hard to, to evangelize and to teach and to talk to people about religion because we're so fractured in so many different ways. And so it's the pastors and the elders that really emphasize the authoritativeness and the infallibility of the Word of God. Those are the ministries and the pastors that are causing unity because we're unified in truth. We're unified in truth. But truth also divides us from the people who are straying from the truth. So we want to be consistent. I want to believe what Christians have always believed. I want to believe what the first Christians believed because none of this is evolving or changing. It's all the same. So we have to keep coming back to the authoritativeness of Scripture. I just preached like two pages of notes that weren't there, so I just, I'm going on a little bit of a tangent, but I just, oh, I just want, I want to emphasize just how much we think of God's Word. Without that belief, without that emphasis, we're never going to be unified. We're never going to be unified. Who are the Galatians? Well, if you notice in the opening part of this letter, it says, to the churches at Galatia. Galatia is not a town. And so Galatia is, is not a city. This is a cluster of churches in a region known as Galatia. It's in a, a region known as Galatia. And so this is modern day. If you, if, you, uh, if you got your maps in front of you or whatever, I don't have a fake map up here for you today. I only imagine that sometimes. But it's in modern day Turkey. If you are looking on a map, modern day Turkey, especially the southern portion of Turkey, it was known as Asia Minor and, and that stuff, so I'm not a geography buff, but that's where we're at in the world, and that's an area that was known as Galatia. Here's your homework text. If you want to read more about this region and what was happening in the churches there, your homework text, I always do this too. If you're new here, like, I give a homework text, a place that you can go read later, and it'll complement stuff that I talked about today. Go read Acts chapter 13, starting at verse 14. Acts chapter 13, starting at verse 14, through chapter 14, verse 23. You need some, some devotional time at home with your family. Read that portion of Scripture. That is the area of Galatia. So when we're talking about this, this area, you can actually go read that portion of Acts. And what you'll see is that Paul, the, the person who wrote this letter, he was planting churches in this area. They know him there. They know him there. He has ministered to them personally. He spent years there ministering to them. And you can read about that in Acts 13 and 14. So you might remember some of these cities when we studied through the book of Acts. There was Antioch. There was Iconium. There was Lystra. There was Derbe. You, remember, you might remember this. Uh, this is one of the moments that really stand out, stands out to me in, in the, the book of Acts. When Paul was in Lystra, He's preaching the gospel there, and there's a lot of opposition against him. They don't like what he's saying. They weren't fans. There were some people who loved Paul there. There were some people who hated Paul there. And the people who hated Paul there were really showing up that day. And they started throwing rocks at him. That's called stoning. And they were trying to kill him with rocks. Of all the ways that you could die. And, or maybe choose to die, this would be really low on your list, right? Getting pelted with rocks until you die? You could only hope Nolan Ryan was in there throwing at you to put you out of your misery as quickly as possible. So, these, you know, they, they probably didn't have a 99-mile-an-hour fastball. You're getting pelted with rocks, and you're dying slowly, and it hurts. Well, they pelted Paul with a rock, stoning him. It knocked him out cold. They thought he was dead, 
They drug him outside of the city and left him there and said, well, don't have to listen to that idiot anymore, and went on with their day. The Christians went out there, and they were like, oh, man, Paul, is he, is he dead? Hey, he's alive. They were surprised. Let's take him home. Let's fix him up. Hey, and Paul, you just imagine being Paul like, hey, I'm still here. Well, I guess I'll get up and start preaching again. And that's what he did. He just went along, his, went along on his day and just kept preaching and planting more churches. That, where all of that went down, that's who he's writing a letter to right now. Those were the churches of Galatia. He's writing to them because he knows people there are genuinely believers, but people there were surrounded by people who hated him and hated the Christian message, who hated the gospel of Jesus. So he's writing them to strengthen them so that they did not fall into the false teaching that existed there. I am an apostle. You'll hear him emphasize his credentials over and over in this book. But again, that's helpful. I'm an apostle. Oh, well, should I listen to this teacher over here or should I listen to the apostle who was commissioned by Jesus, the physically present Jesus, and, and affirmed as an apostle by the other apostles? Should I listen to this guy or this guy? You and I are always in that same dilemma. Who are you going to listen to? Well, if you want to be in line with historic Christianity, you got to do what the, the churches in Galatia decided to do. We're going to side with the apostle. We're going to listen to his teaching and be able to discern what is good and bad teaching in this area because he was a really polarizing figure in Galatia. They needed this letter to sort it all out. They were getting bombarded. Those same people that thought they killed Paul were still there teaching false doctrines. So here's the thing, again, like as a believer, uh, I, I emphasized earlier how frustrating it is that we have all of these debates in Christianity and, and uh, all of these different sides you can take on so many different issues and, and issues of first importance and issues of second importance and we can debate and you can go online and just find debate after debate after debate after debate and you get a group of pastors in a room and you'll have debates. <laughs> it's exhausting so many times, but here's, here's kind of where I where I stand on all that. We need the debates. We need to sort things out. We need to all be open to the fact that we could be wrong on some things. But if there's a debate, if there's a debate, and, and, and Paul supports this side, right? You have scripture to back up this position, but you don't have scripture to back up this position. Then you, we want to side with the apostle. And so I want, to know the, I want to know what the false teaching was in Galatia. I want to know exactly what that false teaching was so that I can identify it when I see it, so that I can not agree with it when it, when it surfaces in my life and, and where we live. And I want to side with, I want to side with the, the apostle-approved argument against that position. So for the sake of an introduction to this book, let me tell you the argument. Let me tell you the debate that was happening. This is what the whole book is about. So it, it's, this, again, this is an oversimplification of this argument that we're going to flesh out over months. But here's the argument. When it, come, it was an issue of salvation. Here's the argument in a nutshell. Concerning this debate, it, it had to do with how do you know you're saved from the wrath of God? How do you know you are accepted by God? How do you know God loves you and you are a part of his kingdom? How do you know that? Well, the opposition that existed in Galatia, they were running around telling people, hey, Jesus is great, he's good, he's fine, whatever. But regardless of anything that Jesus said and did, at the end of the day, in terms of salvation, it comes down to if you did enough good things. That's how you know if you're loved by God and accepted by God. That was the opposition speaking. They said at the end of the day, you got to do the right things, you got to think the right things, you got to be connected to the right things, or you are not saved. And then here comes Paul, and he's like, no, 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 you're all wrong. You're all wrong. You want to know why you're loved by God? You want to know why you're accepted by God? There's one answer it's Jesus. He is enough, period. That's it. That was, that, that's why they wanted to stone him and kill him. Because he said that. So we have to decide which, which side are we going to take. The only thing that matters at the end of the day, it isn't what you've done. 
It's what Jesus has done. It's what he's doing and what he will do. It's all about Jesus. Jesus is enough. That's the single most profound thing of our, of our faith. If you can't get on board with that, you're not going to like the New Testament letters at all. You and I need it, though. Here's what Paul's opposition was trying to do. They were basically trying to, uh, you know, again, say, well, Jesus is fine, whatever. You still got to have your act together. And here's what they meant in that context. You still got to have your act together in the sense that you still need to follow Mosaic law. You still need to follow the ceremonies. You still need to follow the regulations. So, you know, you still got to get circumcised. You still got to go to the temple and pay a temple tax. You still, you still got you to do these things and be a good Jew or you're, you're not going to be safe from the wrath of God. Today we have the same opposition. We have the same opposition in our culture, in our day. It, it isn't, it's not like the Mosaic Law, it's not, but it's the same trap. People will say Jesus is great. They'll even say he's the best today. He's sinless, he's the best, but you still got to have your act together or God doesn't love you. You still got to have your act together or you're not saved. You still got to get baptized. You still got to pay your tithe. You still got to avoid R-rated movies. Don't cuss and be be at church on time. Did you catch that last one? (laughs) Paul's opposition would say Jesus is good, but you got to be good in addition to what Jesus has done, or it won't be enough to save you. Paul's opposition would say that Jesus provides a work and you provide a work. And together, if you have a great enough sum of those two works, you are saved. And what they were doing in, in that context, again, Jewish, the Jewish opposition there in Paul's context, they were just trying to make Christianity another division of Judaism. And so if Paul didn't write the book of Galatians, here's what would happen today. We'd all be in Judaism, and there'd be Sadducees, Pharisees, and Christians. And it'd all be Judaism. But because he wrote the book of Galatians, that's not the case. That is not the case at all. We are free from the law. We are free from works-based righteousness. We are free from having to look at anything that we have done or will do in order to determine if we are saved or not. We're free from that. And we only look to Jesus. Here's the flagship verse. I want to to spoil it for you right now. Chapter 5, verse 1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. You're freed from having to look at anything that you do. You're free from having to live up to anything. We just look to Christ. Christ. What a heavy burden it is to think that we have to come up with something to be accepted by God. How heavy is that? I can't lift that. I can't lift that. If if Jesus just went 99% of the way for all of us, he didn't save anybody, did he? If he just went 99% of the way, but we all got to come up with that 1%, then who did Jesus save? Well, we're all all out for ourselves then, right? I mean, if, if... if I am playing baseball and I hit it to the outfield and I run around first, I run around second, I run around third, and I get to home, and, and just an inch before I hit home plate, I'm tagged out, did I hit a home run? No. <laughs> no. I didn't hit a home run. I'm out. What Paul's saying is, hey, Jesus hit the home run. He accomplished it all. You look to him alone. You're free from having to look to all that other stuff. It's just about Jesus. That yoke is so heavy. What would you even do to fulfill that 1%? What do you think you could do? How am I going to appease God? He made like the stars in the sky, lava, your circulatory system. Because you walk the old lady across the street, you're going to be loved by him. (laughs) How's that work? Like When we start thinking like that, when we start looking into our own lives to see if we're loved and accepted by God, which you all do and so do I, here's what we do. We We start to sound insecure and feel insecure. So let's take my baptism, for example. I was baptized when I was 11 years old in a, in a Church of God denomination. And uh, my, my dad was telling me it's a real big deal that I should go get baptized, and I wanted to please my dad. And so, oh, man, I, as I started thinking about that, oh, no. Like, was my baptism good enough? Was I old enough? Did I know enough? Was I just trying to appease my parents? 
Does it count? Should I get baptized again? What Paul would say to us today and what he is saying to us in Galatians, and again, we're going to look at this every week. He's saying, stop thinking like that. Stop thinking like that. You're getting faith all discombobulated. Salvation is through Christ alone. Salvation is through Christ alone. When you think about salvation, think about Jesus. That's it. That's so hard to do. Isn't that easy to say, but hard to do? If you and I are being really honest, we don't like to think that way because we don't trust anybody but ourselves. I got trust issues too. I'm not perfect. I don't like to put my fate in the hands of anybody. Do you? Again, you think of the people that you trust your life with, it's, it's, a, it's a short list, real short list. Because people are inconsistent, people are sinful, people mess up, and this world's messed up, and so we don't trust anybody, because things don't, pa- they don't pan out the way they should. And so if something's going to go wrong, I want it to be my fault. I want my faith to be in my own hands. At least I won't have anybody to blame but myself. We live that way and think that, le- that way, and so we start projecting that way of thinking onto God. When it comes to, to salvation, we think, well, I, I don't know if I want to put everything in, in his hands to accomplish my salvation. I, surely I've got to add something to that. I've got I to do something. I've got I to muster up something to help God with this. We don't want to trust him. But the book of Galatians says you've got to trust him. You don't want the burden of that 1%, buddy. You can't do it. You'll never feel assured if that's the way you think. You'll always doubt. You'll never think you're quite there. This is why Jesus would say, come to me for peace and rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. We're going to end this sermon with an exercise. It's an exercise on how the book of Galatians is going to teach us how to think. So when we think about salvation, when you think about your acceptance before God, it is so critical in how you think. You want to make sure you're thinking rightly or you're not going to be able to live out the gospel in the way that Paul's instructing us to. You want to be able to understand the implications of what Jesus does and has done and will do in such a way that you feel free. It was for freedom that he set us free. You want to feel free? Here's how you do it. Look at verse 4. I'm going to personalize verse 4. I'm going to read it, changing a couple of words as if I'm saying it. And this is what I want you to do as you begin to prayerfully think through the book of Galatians. If I ask you, why are you saved from the wrath of God? Why are you accepted by God? Why does he love you? Here's your answer. It's verse 4. Jesus gave himself for my sins to deliver me from the present evil age according to the will of my God and Father. That's how you can be ministered to by the book of Galatians. You personalize that verse right there. Does God really love me? Am I really in his kingdom? Am I really doing this? Am I really going to be in eternity with him forever? Here's what you do. You take the words of God in the book of Galatians, and you personalize it in this way. You answer that doubt, those questions that you will have, and you'll constantly circle back to the rest of your life, and you say, here's the answer to that question. Jesus gave himself for my sins to deliver me from the present evil age according to the will of my God and Father. Done. You go anywhere past that, you're going to hurt assurance. You're going to doubt. You're done right there. What a relief. That's the only answer you give to those why questions. And again, you'll circle back to those questions. I do that. I've been preaching the gospel for years, and I constantly get to the point, consistently get to the point, just as being a fallen human being, that I'm like, is this genuine? Is this real? Am I... Is, does God really love me? Have I done anything right? Is this, is this really playing out in my life? You ever have those thoughts? Is that just, I know that's not just me. And you have to come back to the book of Galatians and you have to be ministered to by it. This, this is the authoritative word of God saying to us, yeah, Jesus does love me. He has accepted me fully and completely. He loves me more than he can ever love me right now. He has accepted me more than he can ever accept me right now. I'm, I'm spared from his wrath more than I'll ever be spared from his wrath right now because Jesus gave himself for my sins to deliver me from the present evil age according to the will of God. 
So that's why he gets all of the glory. It says, to the glory forever and ever, amen. He gets all the glory because he does all the work. And so as we walk through this book, the Bible, and we begin to think about Galatians, again, is that how you think? Your argument's not with me. I'm not an apostle. Your, your beef is not with me. Discern what I say through the word of God. Let the word of God change your mind. Don't let me change your mind. We want to prayerfully study this empowered by the Holy Spirit. And we want to be changed. Are you open to changing what you believe? Are you open, are you open to being challenged as to what you believe? I hope so. I want to be that way as I preach through this even. We want to be true to the word of God. What a great opportunity we have here to think about the gospel of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I'm so grateful for this time together to think through your word. Works-based righteousness versus faith-based righteousness is such a big issue that is talked about by Paul over and over through several different letters. And Lord, we want to understand it in a way that he taught it. We want to be consistent Christians. Lord, I know that so many of us here, it's these words and these things that um, we're learning, it's easy to think, it's easy to say, yes, I'll agree with that. But it's hard to agree with that in such a way and, and in such a genuine way that it results in peace and rest like what you intend for us because we subconsciously fight it and Lord so many different denominations and so many different churches and so many different pastors have said so many different things about all of this it's a swirling mess Lord maybe the best thing for us to do right now at this stage of life is just to hit reset just this let's just get a clean slate We've studied 66 weeks of the Gospel of Mark. I've got a clean slate right now, and I'm just going to be informed by Galatians so that I can think rightly. Lord, help us to reap the benefits of your word in such a way. Help us to be changed and rebuked by it. What a special time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.